This podcast is made possible by the good people at Boopa. Boopa is a health and care company committed to helping more than 5 million Australians live longer, healthier and happier lives. To learn more about Boopa, jump online and check them out. Okay, first things first. What we're going to be talking about today might seem heavy, scary, overwhelming. You might know or love someone who's had it. Maybe you've even been affected yourself. It's cancer. And no, we're not talking about a cure. But what we do know is that some cancers are lifestyle related. So what role does food play in that? Is there anything that we can do to give us the best chance of being cancer free? Let's find out. Welcome to In Good Health, a podcast about the forces which push and pull us through the world, our bodies, the food we eat and the way we live. We'll look at food and how we can eat for better physical, mental and social health and the way our decisions at home can affect lives on the other side of the world. I'm Dr Sandro. And I'm Dewey Cook. You know, cancer's a scary one for me. Mm. My cousin had breast cancer, my uncle and grandfather both died of cancer. In the back of my mind, I'm worried that cancer's going to be the thing that gets me in the end Mm. and it feels horrible, like there's this inevitability to how things might turn out whether I like it or not. But, you know, the way I see it, there are a few options here. I could be sad and worried and do nothing to change things or I could learn a bit and try to live the healthiest life I can for as long as I can. And I guess a big part of that is looking at what goes on my plate, right? Yep. So... Sandra, when it comes to food and cancer, where do we even start? Let's start by understanding what cancer is. In most cases, it occurs when the body's cells start to change and an abnormal growth or a tumour emerges. Tumours can be benign, malignant or precancerous with varying degrees of risk. Then there's the blood cancers like leukaemia, which form in the blood cells and the bone marrow of the body. In fact, it's important to understand that there are more than 100 different types of cancers. It's kind of an umbrella term for a group of diseases that come with many permutations. But the research is pretty clear that up to a third of all of these cancers can be prevented by reducing what we call behavioural or dietary risks. We're talking things like reducing or cutting out alcohol and not smoking, getting plenty of exercise, practising sun safety and maintaining a healthy weight. And of course, there's diet. So to understand more about what research is telling us about food and cancer, I spoke to someone who knows. Hi, I'm Alison Hodge. I work at the Cancer Council as a senior research fellow. I'm also an honorary associate professor at the University of Melbourne. I work in the cancer epidemiology division at the Cancer Council doing epidemiological research especially in relation to nutrition. So what does a nutritional epidemiologist actually do? Well, epidemiology is the study of population distributions of diseases and looking at risk factors for diseases in populations. And I specifically look at nutritional risk factors for diseases and particularly cancer, of course. So is that looking at what types of food, what amounts of food, what elements of food might increase or decrease our risk of certain diseases? Yes, that's exactly right, Sandro. And all of these years of research, you've been working in this space uh, for many years. What have we learned? What do we know about cancer and diet? 
Well, we know quite a lot and, you know, we've been doing this research for a long time. In 1981, it was estimated by fathers of epidemiology, Richard Doll and Pito, that somewhere between 20 and 70% of cancer in the US could be avoided by healthy diet and their estimate was in the middle around 35%. And more recent estimates have confirmed that sort of proportion So you're saying a third of cancer in our society could be avoided by helping people to get access to and consume and enjoy a healthier diet? Yes, I think that's quite likely. Obviously, there's a wide variation Mm, around that estimate, but a substantial proportion, definitely. And what does that diet look like? Is it some sort of uh, rich in superfoods and keto something else's, or is is it something a bit closer to all of our hearts? Um, It's very simple, really. The recommended diet that the Cancer Council would promote and is based on the World Cancer Research Fund recommendations includes lots of plant-based foods, so fruits, vegetables, whole grains and legumes, not too much red meat and limited processed meat, limited amounts of processed foods that are high in fat and salt and sugar, Mm. avoiding sugary soft drinks, avoiding alcohol and maintaining a healthy weight. So there's nothing revolutionary. It sounds like the same diet we'd be recommending for lots of other health conditions. One of the things we often hear about is meat and cancer. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, processed meat, the curing process in itself creates substances in the meat, which are potentially carcinogenic in Mm. laboratory tests. And these are things like N-nitroso compounds and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Horrible names. Yeah, it sounds frightening. Scary sounding (laughs) things. But also red meat, when you cook it, especially with high temperature cooking, such as high temperature frying, grilling or barbecuing, and you Mm. get that black, crispy, you know, really good stuff on the Mm. outside, that also creates those kind of chemicals. So again, the polyaromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic aromatic amines, which Mm. might also be carcinogenic. Okay, so certain types of, so processed meats, uh, particularly store-bought processed meats and, you know, the salamis and cured meats and things like that, consuming a lot of those, also processed hams and, and, um, and so on, as well as then red meat, if we cook it in a certain way, both may increase our risk of certain types of cancer. Yes. Okay. So the recommendation is to, you know, really pretty much avoid processed meats altogether and Mm. just limit red meats. And that is, as you say, consistent with the dietary guidelines for general health. Mm. Red meat is an important source of, you know, iron and B vitamins and zinc and so on. So nobody is suggesting that you need to give it up altogether, but not too much and preferably if you can cook it without too much, you know, blackening and charring, it's good too. (laughs) And that's what strikes me is that the diet that the Cancer Council recommends is very similar to the diet we would recommend for heart health or skin health. It's not sort of these magic diets and magic combinations for all the different body parts. It's actually kind of one diet. It makes it pretty simple if you can achieve it, uh, if you can afford it and you can find it and you know what to do with it. But at least the diet we're looking to achieve is shared across all the different body parts. That's exactly right, yes. So the only thing that cancer recommendations have specifically is avoid alcohol as much Mm. as possible. Other recommendations, you know, follow the NHMRC guidelines and you can have a few drinks, but 
In terms of cancer, it's best to avoid alcohol altogether. Mm. So less really or almost no alcohol is best? Optimally, yes. Right. I'm not going to advocate that, liking a glass of wine myself occasionally. And and what cancers are linked with alcohol consumption? Um, Quite a few, but the most important would be breast cancer Mm. because that's such a, a know, common one. Common one yeah. yeah, we often and we we often forget that, don't we? That we we sort of think of the throat or mouth cancers or things that maybe get you know that the alcohol touches on the way down to our bellies. But mm. actually, breast cancer is something that I think a lot of Australians would not realise is linked with alcohol consumption. So oh, an important exactly one to remember. Right. And what about sugar? So one, some of the research that you've been doing is is on sugar, and often we think of sugar and sort of weight gain or sugar in our teeth, but you've been finding some really interesting results around sugar and cancer. Yes, well, not specifically sugar. I guess our study was on sugar-sweetened soft drinks. Right, okay. So we think that it's most likely something to do with the sugar that is consumed in soft drinks because that seemed to be the biggest source of sugar for the people who drank a lot of soft drinks. Mm. But we looked at that in relation to the 11 obesity-associated cancers. There are now 13, but when we started that study, there were 11 cancers identified as being associated with obesity. When you say associated, it means linked to. So like we think there's a link between weight gain and 13 different types of cancers. Okay. So that has been fairly well accepted by... Mm. um, Everybody and we put them all together because some of them we didn't have enough people who developed the individual cancers and found that the people who had drunk more soft drink over time were more likely to get the obesity-related cancers Mm. and that that wasn't all explained by obesity. So clearly we know that obesity was driving a large part of that but there seemed to be something else and we thought that perhaps sugar, Mm. which you know the soft drinks were providing could be part of the problem there. And there is no you know, good understanding of why that would be, but you know, it possibly relates to inflammation or insulin mm. and hormones related to insulin that can promote cancer growth. So we, so we definitely recommend avoiding sugary soft drinks, but sugar in other forms as well. Mm. So insulin, which is a hormone which is increased when you consume sugar or any other carbohydrate and a number of other macronutrients. So we think there might be some sort of link between insulin, which is sort of a growth promoter, and cancer in some way. That has been proposed for Mm. some cancers, yeah. And so when we look at the studies of sugar, and what you're saying is that increasing our sugar intake, regardless of our weight, but also, or especially if we have weight gain with that sugar consumption, it increases our risks of certain types of cancer. But how do we know it's not that it's, you know, people with uh, lower incomes are drinking more of that su- of the sugary drink or that it's not the weight gain itself? What, what sort of research methods do you use to make sure that it actually is the sugar and not something else completely? Well, that's a good question. But the way that we do it um, is... In statistical modelling, where we adjust for as many of those other potential Mm. confounders, as we call them, Mm. that could be explaining that. So we look at, you know, education and country of birth and physical activity and smoking and possibly alcohol consumption as well, you know, that also contribute to the risk of cancer and Mm. might vary between people who have different levels of soft drink consumption. Okay. We looked at 
non-obesity-related cancers and found that artificially sweet and soft drinks were associated with increased risk of those other cancers. Wow, okay. So, so artificially sweetened drinks might be reducing the risks of the cancers associated with obesity because you're taking out the sugar, but it might be introducing a risk of other types of cancers mm. that are not associated with obesity. Yes, and so I guess that's one of the reasons that we don't promote mm. necessarily using them as a substitute. We promote water and low-fat milk. And I, yeah, I think this is a really important message as well because people often ask, oh, well, what about artificially sweetened drinks? You know, Because the industry obviously is moving very quickly towards those, promoting them heavily as a healthier alternative. But largely we don't have a lot of evidence around the healthiness of those drinks and it's quite varied because if you're looking at obesity outcomes, obviously it, there will be benefits, but there may be other costs or other risks, which is exactly what you're saying. So again, I mean, the take-home message should be try and stick to water or sparkling water or, you know, something that doesn't have sugar or an artificial sweetener in it. Yeah, so I don't want to get too sort of stuck on artificially sweetened drinks, but I would definitely suggest water is a better option. Mm. One of the landmark studies that the Cancer Council has been working on is this Melbourne Collaborative Cohort Study, which is massive and also includes particular focus on Italian and Greek migrants. And as an Italian descendant myself, that sounds great for me. But can you tell me a little bit more about the study and, and what it was looking at and why so many of my cousins, aunties and uncles were involved? <laughs> yes. Um, well, back in the late 80s, Graham Giles, who was the head of the Cancer Epidemiology Division, was interested in looking at diet and cancer and mm. because of those figures that I told you before about the proportion of cancer that's believed to be associated mm. with diet. And it was known at the time that people from Southern Europe were healthier than Australian-born people in many respects. And at that time, they were the main migrant population in Melbourne. Now, we didn't have all the various Asian groups that mm. you would include in a study now, probably. So it was to get a wider variety of diet. We didn't want just all Australian people who probably ate similarly. We wanted to include Greek and Italian people who we knew had a healthy diet. Mm. And you know, the Mediterranean diet kind of comes up in this context and it's been one that's, you know, promoted for health over a long time. So we recruited, well, not me personally, but <laughs> would, You would have been busy, Alison, because you recruited 41,000, yes. 41,500 people. Yes. So and a we huge needed, trial. We needed all that many people. That, mm. um, so they were supposedly healthy at the time between the ages of 40 and 69 years. Mm -hmm. And we got them in to the Cancer Council and mobile study centres around Melbourne and asked them all about what they ate and we measured them and took blood samples and, yes, collected as much information as we could and then we just had to sit back and wait and see what happened. And it took at least 10 years, possibly a little bit more, before we had enough cases of cancer to actually start doing analysis. And the first mm. things that we started with were those more common cancers, so breast cancer, bowel cancer and prostate cancer. Mm. Um, and it yeah, took that long to get enough cases. And since then, we've been 
doing a lot of work on a lot of different risk factors, including diet. Mm. And um, one of the earliest studies that we did was about red meat and bowel cancer. And we did show some evidence that red meat was associated with colorectal cancer, which now contributes to those you know, large reports like the mm. World Cancer Research Fund's study that promotes healthy diet recommendations for avoiding cancer. And, you know, similarly, our soft drink work has contributed to the evidence in that recommendation. Mm. And this is this is such a great example of how important research is, but also how long research can take. And I mean, you had 41,500 people that you had to go and collect information from. You establish what's called a cohort, which is a group of people, and you want some differences in there because if everyone's the same, then you're not going to have the diverse sort of genetic and exposure differences, diet differences that maybe allow you to then compare when they start to develop cancer 10, 15, 20 years later, as you would expect in any population that size, there'll be a certain number that start to be affected by a whole range of different disease outcomes. And eventually, as everyone does, their life will come to an end. And then you try and work out, well, what are the differences and what are the exposures along their life course earlier in life that might explain, that might cluster, that might start to piece together where, you know, what are the what are the things that are increasing their risks of certain types of cancer? And it's incredible to think that investment of the Cancer Council of 15 or 20 years to now start be getting such rich information that we're all benefiting from, including things like, is it meat or is it not, the role of sugar, all these other things that are kind of now starting to bloom, I suppose, from such a huge and long-time investment from people like yourself. We are finding that at um, our new cohort study, which is the ABC study, we are collecting blood samples from people all around Australia by sending them into pathology labs. We're collecting saliva samples which we're mostly doing for looking at genetic markers. But, mm. you know, once we can do this kind of stuff in that sort of scale and measure various things, it's going to open up a whole lot of new avenues for nutritional epidemiology. So for listeners who are healthy uh, going about their lives, but obviously we're all concerned about the risk of cancer, whether it's for us or for the people around us. What what are some simple things that we should all be trying to do if we can to reduce our risks of cancer when it comes to the food we eat or the food that we eat with others? Okay. Well, as I say, the World Cancer Research Fund recommendations are really what we would base our recommendations on. So that's not quite about what you eat, but avoid being overweight be physically active, don't smoke, don't drink too much, eat plenty of plant-based foods, you know, fruit and vegetables, whole grains and legumes, limit the amount of meat, particularly processed meats, but red meats as well, avoid processed foods that are high in fat and sugar and salt, and um, avoid sugary soft drinks, and, oh yes, get nutrients from foods, not supplements. So mm, That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, that, that's an important point as well. If you eat all those foods that I described, then you shouldn't need supplements in most situations. Mm. And I think it's a, good, it's a good reminder for people as well because sometimes we need a little bit of a push to eat our fruit and veg and to get more veg into our plates. And things like heart disease or, or maybe even weight, you know, they can sometimes feel a bit, 
overwhelming and a long way off. But I think we've all been, many of us would have had some experience directly or indirectly through friends or family with cancer. And I think knowing that there are things that we can all do or try and encourage each of us and our families to do simple, small things in our day that might reduce our risks is really empowering. Mm. And if people want more information, there's loads of incredible information on the Cancer Council's website and the Live Lighter website, and we'll have those links available. And there are recipes and ideas and tips and hints all put together by professionals from the Cancer Council and their network of partners. So awesome work. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, Sandro, where does this all leave us? Like, We know we can't 100% control what happens to our bodies, but what can we do? Yeah, well, it's really about packing our diets with all those good things. Mm. Lots of fresh fruit and vegetables, healthy oils like olive oil, whole grains, mm. nuts, seeds, and, of course, legumes. Mm. Well, speaking of legumes, our friendly neighbourhood dietitian and expert <laughs> in all things Mediterranean diet, Deakin University's Dr. Elena George had this to tell me about our little legume loves, lentils. (laughs) (laughs) Legumes are such an amazing food that I think kind of lost trend for a while. Like they were sort of the daggy food and now that we're starting to go plant-based and that's becoming a bit more topical, we're starting to realise how great they are. So they're high in protein, they're high in carbohydrate um, and they've got lots of fibre in them as well. So legumes are a prebiotic. So when we're talking about feeding the good bugs in our gut, they have prebiotic effect and having the protein in them makes them filling as well. And they can just be really tasty and delicious and help us keep our meat intake down when we're really having too much meat. I think the challenge is just knowing how to cook them well. And we're talking about lentils. Yeah, so lentils, pulses, you know, kidney beans, chickpeas, any, all of them really are beneficial and picking the ones that you like and eating those, whether it's, you know, adding a four bean mix to your salad, you know, whether it's having a lentil patty, um, you know, that you have in a a burger with some salad in it and some sourdough bread, all of those are, are great. So we've talked about how this idea of the Mediterranean diet should be thought of more like guiding principles than expecting everyone to eat like a Southern European or like Sandro. <laughs> <laughs> and lentils are a really great example of that. Mm. They're a staple of Middle Eastern and South Asian cooking. You'll find them in North Africa and in Europe. They're red and brown and green and yellow. Mm. There are just so many varieties. And while I was doing the rounds at the Abbotsford Convent Farmers Market in Melbourne, I asked lentil farmer Tanya Walter from Burham Biodynamics for some of her top tips. So I soak my lentils for about eight hours and then I tip that into a very big colander about 30 centimetres across and then I just let that sit for maybe 12 to 24 hours and a little shoot starts to grow out of that and then by the next morning it's actually got maybe a 10 millimeter shoot and it's crispy and you can just grab that and it's crunchy and you can eat that straight away and it's so good for you Um, sometimes I heat that up and throw it in a slow cooker so legumes are fantastic when it comes to making big lots of food that's going to last you for days and it's so cheap and you don't have to refrigerate it you can just store it in an airtight container it will absolutely last for years check out their website burrumbiodynamics.com.au for recipe ideas like lentil sausage rolls yellow split pea soup and warm lentil mango and chicken salad Mm. yum 
Hey team, Dr. Sandro here. For more information and advice on any of the things we've chatted about today, make sure you also consult your own doctor. Check out my Twitter feed at Sandro DeMeo for news and information from the world of good health. And if you've got any questions or feedback about what we've been discussing today on the podcast, use the hashtag InGoodHealth. And please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your mates, tell your mum, it all helps. Thank you to Miranda from Melbourne Farmers Markets for connecting us with loads of terrific storeholders. If you're in Melbourne, check out their website, mfm.com.au, for all the upcoming market dates around town. This episode was produced by me, Dewey Cook, and mixed by Jessie Bear. Thanks for listening. <laughs>